Hey, good morning, everybody. Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development. And I'm delighted to have with us John Bruce, who's the owner of Fire Snake Enterprises. Hey, John. Hi, good morning. Or I guess it's good morning there. It's morning here, but uh, we're on Thursday. You're on Thursday. Well, I can tell you that it's going to be rainy because um, I'm in Friday. I can tell you the future. Yep. Well, it's 20 below here in snow. Wow. Well, you can keep your Thursday. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> After seven years of Indonesia, I'd rather be hot than cold. So, John, I'm, I'm glad you're there and I'm here, to be honest. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. So, John, you, you have a really long history in um, emergency response, particularly wildfire and land management and all sorts of things. Why don't you just tell us what, what led to you launching the Fire Snake? Well, um, after 32 years with government, I basically uh, was able to secure a pension and decided that I wanted to do things my way. Uh, so I so I ventured out on my own. I'm in the process of starting it up. Uh, I figure I have the background and the knowledge, and the best way to get my voice heard in the areas that I have passion about was to go into a consulting type scenario or field. Okay. And you have quite a long history with um, dealing with wildfires, particularly. Why don't you tell us about some of those experiences you've had? Say again? Why don't you tell us about some of your experiences that you've had with wildfires and management of wildfires? Okay. Um, I started out in the basement, uh, initial attack on small fires as a, as a forest officer. Um they would fit me in as an extra on the crew. And then so I started as a grunt, uh, you know, getting picked on by the crews and all of that until I learned my way and, and worked my way into supervisory roles. I learned every aspect of an incident uh, uh, from logistics to planning to operations to command, I've I've done them all, and I started on very small fires, like I say, uh, where a four-man unit would go in, and then I've been the incident commander on complex incidents where fires were over two hundred thousand hectares in size, wow. and I had upwards of 250 personnel below me on, on the incident. I've also managed uh, an entire forest district. Fort McMurray is famous for being overrun by a wildfire, but that was after I left. It's uh, It was a terrible occurrence, but... Um, I actually spent a year up there managing or as manager of, of the entire forest area, which was about 61,000 uh, square kilometers. Yeah. So quite, a, quite an area. Um, 
I guess it would be approximately the size of New Zealand, if not even a little bigger. <laughs> Could be. We're not a large nation, so it's possible. Yeah. So that's um that's that's a lot of responsibility, a lot of land to look after, a lot of potential for damage to land and, and loss of life. Um, you handled that for many years, and then you moved on, worked in First Nations consultation. Tell us about that role. Yeah, the First Nations consultation was sort of a, a fill-in um, between uh, like. I was no longer able to be feed in the ashes due to an illness, so I couldn't be in a smoky environment, which is pretty hard for a fire guy. Mm. And and as a sort of in between, I got into the First Nations consultation, where all resource companies are required to consult with First Nations Indigenous peoples prior to applying on anything in Alberta that any work to be done on Crown land requires that they consult. And these are traditional lands where in some cases you could have a half a dozen First Nations that have an interest or a traditional take on the area that you're proposing to do resource management, whether it be a, mm. a well site or a top, a cut area or a pipeline or a road or just anything that, that occurs, you have to ensure that you're not interfering with the, the rights of the Indigenous peoples. So that's mandated by law that all, all work on that land has to be consulted first. What if they said no? Well, if they say no, they can't just say no. There has to be a reasonable uh, reason for their their no. They have to support it with evidence that supports why they that why we should deny the company the ability to go out there and and make a living or mm. or manage resources. Um, some of these things may be like. Uh, it could be a rare plant that's involved that the right. local indigenous have knowledge of being in the close vicinity of whatever's being proposed. Hmm. It could be a burial site. It could be hmm. anything of importance, but they have to show a reason for it. Wow. And... In New Zealand, we have our, our native people, our tangata whenua, the Maori people, and um, it's just it's part of who we are and what we do to consult with our native people. We have a treaty uh, between the Crown and the native people. Everything should be in partnership in the way we do things. What do you think in your experiences dealing with wildfires and managing people, are there any experiences you had then that enabled you to do this consultation and to do that well? Yeah, I, I, I think in just, well, experience in life, uh, respecting people. Mm. Um, when I started in wildfire, uh, the majority of our firefighters are, are Indigenous peoples. Mm. Um, they were, at that time, they, they were less structured and mandated by safety regulations as they are today. 
it was more of let's get 28 guys and gals from the First Nations Reserve and we're going to camp on the fire line and we were basically our own community. So when I was starting out in the beginning, I, I took the time to just sit back and learn from their leadership, like their, their true mm. bosses, their, mm. their squad bosses, learn their techniques, learn mm. how they, they work, and then, you know, work beside them instead of above them. Yeah. I've always been a person to, I will not force anybody to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Like, well, on a humorous note, my first uh, sector boss where I had three 28-man units, uh, we were camped up in a mountain area. I was the only sector boss left out there to sleep overnight. And it was on a gravel bed where a river met another river where at a high elevation and there was no outhouse. So I dug it because it was a gravel bed. They, everybody said, well, how are we supposed to be able to dig an outhouse? Well, I dug the outhouse and they didn't quite like where it was located, but they saw it could be done and that I put the effort in. So by the fall, end of the following day, they had another outhouse dug, set up just for the camp that they were more comfortable with, but they appreciated my efforts. Uh, those type of things, you know, nobody, there is no job below you. Mm. And there is no person above you. I think those, those are basic, uh, well, my parents instilled that in me all my life it doesn't matter race tree color anything hmm. your background your i don't i don't care if you're the minister of or the prime minister or or what what have you or you're just an average joe walking down sid row if you treat people with the same respect you're going to get the results yeah, that's awesome. Just so you know, I'm making notes as you're talking and you're talking about taking the time to learn about other people, taking time to learn their leadership techniques and that no job is below you and learning respect right at the beginning. Those are great principles, John. Thank you for sharing those. Um, I do want to ask you about integrated land management. You're a specialist in that area. Could you spend a few moments just describing what that actually is? Okay, well, Integrated Land Management Specialist in Alberta. What we found was the land is being pressured by everybody. Whether you're a recreationalist, you want something out there, like we have crown lands, we call them. So these are just uh, the forested lands of the crown. They're, they're, not, they're not privately owned. They're, they're crown. And we have a two-thirds of our provinces is forested area and considered crown land. So it has no ownership. So we're basically the the holder of that. 
Now, there's oil companies, there's pipeline companies, there's timber companies, there's First Nations that want to be able to hunt and fish. Hmm. They want to be able to harvest their berries or harvest their special medicinal plants. There's your recreationist that wants to go camping or quadding. There's all of these conflicting uses. And then there's Hmm. uh, caribou is a big one. Uh, Grizzly bears. There's uh, species that require all of these uh, specialized habitats. And you have to find a balance. So my, my position was assisting in the planning branch how how do we find that balance how do how do we get all of these multiple stakeholders together in the same room and none of them are going to get everything they want but hopefully everybody will get something they want and my role would be troubleshooting or identifying ways to ensure that balance would happen Hmm. and and where in some cases like you can't have everything everywhere on the landscape you have to make trade-offs and you have to get people to understand that like maybe your favorite place over here is not going to be available for you because it's more suited to this use Hmm. but if you look over here in this corner it has everything you're asking for in an area. Mm. So maybe you can, maybe we'll, we'll highlight your desires and needs for this chunk of land to outweigh the others. Mm. So it, it's just, um, yeah, you, you've got a, a bag of marbles that are all different colors and you, and that's all, that's all the marbles you got. So you have to be able to give them up between everybody equally or at least as close to it as possible. Right. You know, when you look at it, it's like dealing with about 20 little kindergarten kids all at once <laughs> and trying to satisfy them all. Well, yeah. it's, it's uh, some people may be insulted at that, but when you really break it down, that's what it comes down to. Right. John, I also noticed on your uh, profile, you know, your your huge experience in emergency management and different roles that you've taken your skill sets into, but you're also an advocate for people with cancer. Tell us about that. Okay, well, I'm a head and neck cancer survivor. Uh, that's why I have a sort of crooked, uh, crooked head, I guess. Uh, they, they removed a very large tumor from the side of my neck and rebuilt me and... And just amazing stuff. The body can do anything, but the mind, if the mind isn't willing, you've lost the battle before you started. So because I had such a traumatic uh, disease, I guess, that really disfigured me, it, uh, well, my passion was wildfire. And then after... After treatment, I found out that I could no longer be in a smoky environment. Mm. And like just following a truck that's pumping diesel out the back of its exhaust when I'm driving down the street, sometimes I have to pull over because I can't handle 
the exhaust fumes. Hmm. So I worked my whole life to become a fire behavior specialist. I was getting opportunities to instruct at national level courses. I was taking over as unit leader for our fire behavior specialist course, which is the highest level of any fire behavior course you can take. Hmm. We've, we've even had uh, students come from New Zealand to Alberta, and on my team, when I took the course, I had an individual from New Zealand on my team. So that that's how, uh, how good of a course it was and how high up I was climbing in the ranks of my, mm. of my expertise and my passion for fire. I was also per- starting to participate in research and science uh, of related to wildfire and uh, working on a wildfire management plan. But then I got sick and I had to leave. So from that experience, I met a, a therapist to express to me that I have a good story and people could learn from it. So I wrote a book uh, on it. And then whenever my care providers call me to perhaps participate in a research project or, or go do a talk, or I've even opened some conferences. Um, And now I'm mentoring four first-year doctors in our university program for the next two years on a patient perspective. Hmm. Because uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, people with cancer did not survive for the most part. Now, what happened was in this transition of time and technology is we ended up with a, like in Alberta, there's 100,000 plus survivors of cancer, but they never had Mm. anybody like that before. So who advocates for them? Mm. There's recurrences, there's, uh, it's about life now rather than treatment, right? So Mm -hmm. That's, that's where I got into advocating because people, well, you want to be treated with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. And um, there is life after cancer, even with dramatic uh, physical debilitation de- uh, de- or whatever. Hmm. So that that that's what got me into it. I've I've always uh, liked people, and I've never had a problem being open about myself. You know, when when somebody asks me how are you today, I tell them whether they actually wanted to know or not. Well, they <laughs> ask the question, so I'll tell them. <clears throat> And, and that goes to my style in life of, of incident management and that is there are no stupid questions. And if you do ask right. a question, you want an answer. So, you know, like I, I've 
I've always told everybody above me, my supervisors, first thing, if I'm doing something wrong and you don't tell me I'm doing it wrong, I will continue to do it wrong. Mm. And and I said, that's on you. That's not on me. Mm. So uh, I said, uh, if I have an issue or a question about something, I'll ask the question. And it's your your job to to guide me and help me get the answer. But at the same token, if you don't tell me what I'm doing wrong, that's your you're the one at fault, not me. Mm. And mm. one one saying uh, a man that I very much respect told me was, "You have to be allowed to fail in order to succeed." And if you live by that mantra, and you allow people that you manage to to fail, and give them opportunities mm. to succeed by allowing them to fail, I think you you'll end up with a stronger team. Mm. I was listening to a podcast yesterday while I was in the gym and um, the person said, expect failure, but don't accept defeat, which I thought was great, which sounds like what you're saying, actually, when you said that the, if the mind is willing, you can win the battle. Yeah, yeah. It's all the, the mind is your weakest link. Because mm. if you're not willing to, <clears throat> like, I don't know why, I just can't quit. And I, I never quit. That's that's why I'm still here. I, I shouldn't have made it. Like the, the mathematical probabilities of my survival were 43% to survive five years. That was 14 years ago. Wow. And then a year and a half after that, I ended up with a complicating, uh, uh, I ended up with strep A bloodborne, which which uh, is fatal in a third of its cases, but that was on top of all of the other challenges I have with my throat. Mm. So, yeah, if the mind's willing, you can do anything. Wow. You're an absolute champion. I really want to thank you for your time just as we wrap up, John. Um, if you were talking to an aspiring emergency manager, who wanted to lead people, lead teams, and be successful in the industry, what's one or two things you might say to them as advice for their career? Um, well, communication is key. Mm -hmm. um, listening and learning from those that are experienced and have been before you is, is extremely key. Um, technology <clears throat> is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But but it's a tool. Models are models. They are not reality. Models, the, what comes out of a model is a depiction of a reality of what you put into the model. Right. So if your information is broad and general, but you're using a model like a scalpel in a surgery, you're, you're off the mark. Like in wildfire, we have these things called indices, numbers that tell us what the hazard is. Mm -hmm. But those indices only represent that weather station that they were taken from at 5 o'clock peak burning period for one minute in the day. 
they are they are representing the most extreme case of situation. Everything on either side of that window from that weather station is is on a curve away from that extreme point. So I I find that technology is fantastic, but it becomes a crutch and too relied on. Right. You have um my my expertise in wildfire is it's the art and science of wildfire behavior. The art is a blending of my experience and what I've observed and what I've been taught. I, when I walk through a forest, I can see it burn in my head, which is sort of screwed up. But, but if I look at a model, it's, I think, okay, well, a model, what will a model do in a computer program? Well, what it will do is there is no suppression being done in that model's output, mm. and it will eat, it will burn every burnable polygon that's attached to another burnable polygon eventually. So, it's, I can't say that more. Use your technology to get an idea of what you're looking at. Then mm. use your experience and knowledge to determine your, your path forward. And then, and then with, the, with incident command systems and teams, scope, span of control, maximum seven, no matter what incident you're on, never have your span of control beyond seven individuals below you. I, I didn't do the science on it, but it's been proven that the maximum effective control one individual has is seven people. When you have an org chart, you don't need to fill all the boxes in the org chart you have to fill all the responsibilities that are within those boxes. If you're at the top of the org chart, you're responsible for every box below you that's empty. Um, and and one thing that's, uh, that's done me very well is that I give people chances to fail. Mm. I put them in situations I think they can handle and I'll support them and mentor them as much as I can. But in order to learn, they have to be able to do something that's above where they are today. So, um, yeah, I and 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 if you be decisive, I've I've had a case where I've got the emergency operations council on the phone. And the, the head forest superintendent is en route, could be there within an hour. And I'm the only one there, a lowly officer sitting on the desk. But the Emergency Operations Council wants a, wants a question answer whether they should evacuate 24 families in mm -hmm. front of a four-kilometer fire front. 
So I said, well, I looked at the fire and I said to myself, well, the fire should potentially, if the wind flips or something happens, it decides to take a run, it should be at those houses within an hour. So I had to make a decision and I put forth the decision to evacuate. Hmm. My fourth superintendent walked in the door 20 minutes later and I told him what happened and he said I made the right decision, but I made the decision. As long as you can rationally support your decision, and that doesn't mean 80% of your decision, it means you have the facts in front of you and you're making a rational decision. If you can't support why you made a decision, then that decision is wrong. Especially if people's lives or or, uh, livelihood are at risk. Mm. You you have to be able to stand up in a crowd and be able to say, no, you're wrong. We can't do it that way. At my fire behavior specialist course, the entire class could do the final exam together. But there was one number that basically we had to determine our own uh, fire indices. So our, and, and we had very little information to do it. So we had to do things that were twist like, um, okay, in three days, uh, find fuels with with uh, 21 degrees and 45 RH, find fuels will recover to a number of 85, which is now hitting a burn regimen. That's, that's just a fact supported by evidence that it takes three days for the fine little thin, thin fuels to recover and be burnable again. And then you've got all your other layers. And we had to determine our own numbers through, through. oh, it hasn't rained in 30 days. We're in, a, we're in a different country, working in vegetation we don't know, but we had to rationalize our best decisions. Well, there was one last number which was difficult to rationalize, and the class took a vote to go with it. I couldn't. So I said, our team went the other way. Our team got the best marks in the entire class. They couldn't support their decision rationally. And it, and it hurt them because, right. because it all compounds, right? Everything from this step and decision on created a further gap in correctness on on what they were planning for their strategy for the next day. Everything falls apart when you've got nothing holding up your foundation, right? Right. Well, John, thank you very much for giving us your time and sharing your experiences and your wisdom as well. Really appreciate it and all the very best with your Fire Snake Enterprises. Well, thank you very much. I appreciated the opportunity and perhaps this will maybe get me some work. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
Maybe you never know. And for those of you that are watching this, either the recording or live and uh, on, on YouTube or on Facebook or on LinkedIn, if you're an emergency manager, uh, you're always training, you're always learning new things, you're always getting certifications. And maybe you've got that big binder full of certifications, but it hasn't translated into an academic degree. Maybe an institution hasn't offered you credit for that. That's why we exist. That's why we were formed. It's why UARD.org is there or UARD.ac.nz. So reach out to us so we can give you recognition of prior learning for everything you've done. And again, one more time, thank you so much for being with us, John. Really appreciate you and the work that you've done, and you're an absolute champion. So we'll see everyone else again on our next video cast.